You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Romans chapter 15, I'm just going to read one verse and pray. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come, God, at this moment to pray, Lord God. And we pray over, over our country and over our nation. Lord, would you allow us, Lord Jesus, to live at peace with you and with one another? Would you help us, God? Would you change us? Would you transform us away from the selfish desires that are inside us? God, would you transform us away from politicking and power structures, and would you allow your kingdom to come? God, would you allow your kingdom to come and rest so sweetly and wonderfully upon us all? God, we thank you that we live here in freedom. And God, we pray that for everyone as well. And so, Jesus, we now come and we turn our eyes away from you. Away, we turn our eyes, excuse me, Lord God, towards you and away from things of the flesh. We turn our hearts to you, Lord God, in all manner. I pray, Jesus, that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and speak to us, Lord God, through your word. We pray this, Jesus, now in your name. Can everyone say amen? amen. So this message is called Love the Weak. Love the Weak. That would be very different than other ways of talking about people who are weak in society. So outside of the kingdom of God, there's lots of language like tolerate the weak you know, or tolerate each other. And our society plays into that. And I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of God, the way we work inside the kingdom of God, the power that flows from the cross is not about tolerating. We're really different. It's about actually loving the weak. And that's not as easy as it might sound. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you do, and you're writing down love the weak, you have to understand that it's not easy, is it, church? Try love someone that you don't like. <laughs> that's very Jesus-like. That's very gospel. Try and love someone who's actually offended you, someone who's very different from you. Now we're going to go there for the moment, someone who's in a different political perspective than you. And Christ says, love them. Love those who are weak. And so this text opens up in Romans. It's really fascinating here in chapter 15 where it says, we who are strong have an obligation. An obligation to who? To the Lord. An obligation to God. We would call ourselves follower of Jesus Christ. Have an obligation to bear with the, fail, with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here's what's fascinating as Paul introduces, introduces this chapter to us. Is that if you've been with us for our teaching through the Romans chapter 15, it's a dissertation. I mean, he, he's going in a very linear, logical way. And he's going to start with something called justification by faith. So he's going to say, listen, do you actually think that you can earn your salvation? Think it not. We are saved by faith. You are not good enough. You don't have a big enough bank account. You are not right enough before God. No human being has righteousness or self-righteousness in such a way that they can, of their own righteousness, ever be justified before God. 
That's how he starts out. And then he's going to start out as a Jewish rabbi, and he's going to be very rabbinic, and he's going to begin to go in some linear lines. As he's going to go through the Old Testament and show how even Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And for those of us who know the scriptures, that's like the end of the story. Like, wow, that's amazing. And then he's going to go on, he's going to call us all sinners. Paul's going to call us all sinners. He's going to say there's none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has uh, fallen short of the glory of God. And then he's going to talk about being in Christ. And he's going to mention Romans chapter 6. It's like a baptism. And so there's this immersion. And what's fascinating, by the way, were you guys here last week for our baptism? That was incredible. I mean, that was incredible. We had a horse trough over there, over by you lovely ladies right there. And uh, you guys were praying last week. And so we had a horse trough right over there. And it was filled with water. And it was filled with water. And I don't know what happened, but it looked like nasty water to <laughs> me. So you all wanted to get dunked in that, and we went for it. But baptism is fascinating because in the Old Testament, baptism is not an ordinance like it is in the New. It is a very different thing. Circumcision was big in the Old Testament. And so we're still like, praise the Lord, it's by grace now. And so, and so but in the Old Testament practices, when you would go to the temple, you would, you would be coming kind of like very much like this in sort of an ag area. From a distance, you'd be dirty and you'd be sweaty. And so you would go into a mikvah bath and you'd be cleansed. And uh, then you'd come out the other way. You could actually even have the same garments on. Generally, you'd change as we would even do to this day. And then you went into worship with sort of understandable. So that idea of cleansing yourself before you came to God was actually what John the Baptist was teaching and preaching about. And John the Baptist, very different than Jesus, telling everyone <laughs> what's up in very direct language. And then Christ would come and get baptized and he would be our representative in that baptism and we would follow him. All these are the teachings of Romans. That linear logic, one plus one equals two. You don't have enough in your account before God for it to add up that of yourself you're right before God. That's everything that's been going on ahead of time. But now, now Paul is actually going to teach us some things that we potentially could miss in the in. in sort of intelligence of the gospel, and he's going to talk about loving the weak. To be a Christ follower is actually to love the weak, and so he's going to start out by saying, and I want to repeat it for the third and probably last time for the moment, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Now on to verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who have reproached you fell on me. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance, this is actually a prayer here in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So all of those words which must be spoken of so that we would understand about loving one another and that Christ is actually asking us to love one another and to encourage one another and to build each other up. You know what this thing does? You know what this thing does? You know what this thing does? That's right, my brother. It tears you down. I mean, get on social media. No, don't get on social media. 
right? But, but, the, but, the, but the mechanical algorithms and the science of social media is that, is that it would work according to negativity and not positivity. It would actually be more mechanically designed to tear you down than to build you up. We are not like that. Christ is asking us to come together as Christ followers and to be those who are actually building and building and building one another up. And if everybody else is tearing one another down, then you build one another up. In that sense, you don't follow the crowd. Because we're going to love the weak. So I've been actually in the Gospels, just in my own personal life, sometimes I have an idea and I'll just want to just kind of page through and to mark... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so uh, recently I've been kind of going through the Gospels and thinking about Jesus in terms of how did he, how did he, did, how much did he really tell people directly with his words that they were sinners? Excuse me. And it's quite fascinating. I mean, it's not like Jesus was mealy mouthed, not at all. Jesus would clearly uh, have moments where he would say, hey, what is easier to do in this situation? To forgive you of your sin or to tell you to rise and walk? What does everybody say? And so in the synagogue in that day, they're just sort of shocked. Like, wait, what are you talking about? You, you're, are you saying that you're God? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm God. Because only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus is going to say, well, what do you think is easier to do? Say you're forgiven of your sin or rise and walk. Here's a man that's crippled, can't get up. What do you think is easier? And they have no answer. No answer at all. So he says, okay, I'll just show you what God does. I'm going to do both. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. And this guy gets up and, he's, and he rises and walks. So there's moments where Jesus definitely interacts in that way. But for the most part, Jesus convicts people of sin by saying, follow me. Follow me and watch how I treat other people. Because I'm not playing by man's rules. I'm not playing by politics. I'm not playing by favoritism. Follow me. Watch how I treat other people. Watch how I have mercy for them. Watch what I have in terms of administration of justice. Watch me. And you watch him, and you can see the disciples would be so convicted because he's acting contrary to human intuition. He's acting contrary, actually, to Judaism, some Judaic practices. And then he's going to do a second thing. He's going, to t he's going to tell stories. So Jesus would tell stories in order for us to understand what Paul has just written about here when he's saying, listen, we actually want to bear with the failings of the weak. We want to understand that the reproaches of sin have fallen on Christ. And we actually want to be those who are building one another up, living in harmony with one another is what verse 5 says. And so here's, here's what Jesus says. So in Luke chapter 15, there's a famous prodigal story. And it's really quite fascinating. And in Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. So let's just camp on Luke chapter 10 for a moment. I'm, you just write it down, I'll cross-reference for you, and then I'm going to explain this. So this is the Good Samaritan. If you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, raise your hand. If you heard this story, okay, great. I can go quickly through this, right? So most of you have really heard, in some degree, the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's the story of the Good Samaritan. So Samaria is north of Jerusalem. And these are people who have actually rebelled against God, Judaism. They're Jewish brothers. Samaritans are actually Jews. And they're actually up in the northern country. And they have their own worship center, very different than Jerusalem. They have their own sort of ethics, very different than Jerusalem. They have their own economy. And they're not loyal to their Jewish brothers in Jerusalem. So much so that they would actually get conquered. 
and the getting conquered, that would actually hurt Judah to the south and cause all kinds of political problems, and people would lose their jobs. People would lose their wealth. People would lose their friends, their homes, their family, their territory, their lands. And so southern Jews left there didn't like to go up there. <laughs> That's an easy way to say that. Why? Because you cost my family. You cost my tribe. You guys were so rebellious to us. You brought judgment of God upon us. And how you handled your geopoliticking meant that I suffered financial loss over many generations. And I have not recovered from that. We don't like you. So Jews would not go into Samaria. So Jesus is now going to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. It's in response to a guy in Luke chapter 10 who calls himself a lawyer. And, Jesus, and he's going to ask Jesus, well, what do I have to do to be right with you in the kingdom of God? And then they're going to banter back and forth. You know, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, strength. Yes? And that guy's going to say, well, I've done those. And Jesus is going to say, okay, well, let's think about that. And the text in Luke 10 says, seeking to justify himself. And other than that, man, is so much like us. We're trying to justify ourselves before God. And so Jesus will tell the story in that context of the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan has three people in it, a priest, general priest, probably a Jewish priest of some kind, somebody of the tribe of Levi, right? and then a Samaritan. The priest would be considered a highbrow member of society. So would the Levite. And the person who's low, low on the social order, looked down upon, looked down upon in the, in the most terrible way was a Samaritan. And so Jesus takes it and says, believe it or not, that guy. He turns it all upside down. Some theologians sometimes call the gospel an upside down kingdom. It's not what you and I would think. You, you and I would think, let's get the highbrow person. Let's get the highbrow person, you know, and we would not think about changing the social order upside down, but God does. In Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, well, who walked away justified? The religious person? The religious person? What's the answer, church? No. How about the person from the Levitical tribe? You know, they're on the right bloodline. They have the right friends. They have the right social contacts. They have the right kind of social acceptance. Did that person go away justified before God? No. The rejected one. The last one anybody would think about. That one. And so Paul's actually given language to that here. He's given language to that right here in consistency with that story of the Good Samaritan. Paul is actually here getting at something called Phariseeism. So let's talk about Phariseeism. So Phariseeism is having the right truth with the wrong heart. Let that never be you. Let that never be me. Let that never be us. In other words, we have the right truth, but we have the wrong heart. And Jesus doesn't like that. Not at all. He, he wants us to have the right truth and the right heart and to, be, and to have those things come together because that's how we're going to live in his compassion. That's how we're going to live in his, in his kingdom. And that's part of what he mentions related to his glory. So he continues now in verse 8 and he says, For I tell you, I'm in Romans 15 now. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant, underlined servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And now there's all these Old Testament passages. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to you your name. That's amazing. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol you. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even who who arises to the rule the Gentiles, and in him that will the Gentiles hope. And so may the God of hope fill you with all joy. How much joy? All, all joy. And peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Okay, let's talk about a few things. The Good Samaritan is the story of an upside-down kingdom. And Jesus will come now also in Luke 15. That's Luke 10. Luke 15, Jesus talked about the, 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 the prodigal son, which is amazing that we call it the prodigal son. Fair to call it the story of the good, good father. And the story of the prodigal son is just amazing. So you probably know enough of it. Okay, so there's a son, and he has an inheritance. He's going to inherit a lot. And he says, I want my now. I want my now. I want my now. Ever felt like that? He wants all of his blessings now. He wants all of his inheritance now. He wants all the goodness that his father can give him right now. And so the father breaks the family inheritance. It's like, that's like breaking an irrevocable trust. So even in our day, an irrevocable trust legally is something that is extremely difficult to break. All but impossible. You have to go to the courts. It's a big deal. That's why they call it an irrevocable trust. Different than a living trust. So this guy has some sort of irrevocable trust that way. The father goes and he breaks it for him. In breaking it, it means the other siblings and those are actually going to have less of a financial benefit. I'm sure you wouldn't like that if you're in that their place. And so the younger brother, the younger son goes, he gets a financial benefit, and he goes off. He goes off. Church, did he do as well with his money? No. no, not at all. He squanders it. In the most Nasty and debasive ways. He squanders it. He squanders it. And then when it's all done with his money, he then goes and, and, uh, and, he's, and he's hanging out in the pigsty. And he begins to realize, you know what? I could go work for my father. I mean, I, could, I, I took away the rights of any kind of sonship, but my dad's actually a good dad. And uh, he, actually, he actually employs people. They get a fair wage. They get a living wage. Look at working for my dad and the lowest rung of the ladder is better than my current circumstances, so I know, I know, I'll go work for Dad. And so he goes back and works for Dad. But what he didn't realize was that Dad was looking at for a long way off. Dad would come out over the days and over the months and over the years and say, is my son ever going to come home to me? And no son would be coming home. And then he'd go out again. He says, my son's going to come home to me. And no son would be coming home. And this is the heart of a father. The heart of a father is to bless the children, is to watch children, sons and daughters, raised up and exceed them and do so well in life and society. And they, they want to have fellowship with them. They want to have a relationship with them. And so one day that father sees that son coming back. The father does well, that which is totally against culture because the way the garments work, he's going to have to pull himself up. He's going to have to tie his, his, his robes and, and he's going to run. And that father represents God. 
There's lots of songs that we've sung through the years about the worship of this. And this father is actually running. It's that picture, really the only picture in the Bible where we watch God running and running and running. He's going to run after the son. He's going to come back. He's going to put the family ring on him, right? I'd like another second ring, so right? So, I, so I, he's going to put another ring on the hand. You're accepted back in the family. We're going to have a party for you. I mean, this is going to be a big deal, big deal. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to rejoice. Jesus, in the, in the teaching of this, says, says, the father says, my son was lost, but now is found. Okay, but is that the whole story? No. Good job. <laughs> Good church today. Praise the Lord. Because there's an older brother. And did the older brother like this? No. He goes to his father and he says, Hey, father, what gives? I mean, this, this quote unquote, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. And, and, and when did you ever throw a party for me, Dad? I, I've been working for you all these years. I've been working hard for you all these days. And I've been in your shadow. I've been in your shadow. And I've been in your shadow. And the Bible doesn't say this, but some of the inference of what, of what that story just says is, yeah, the father could have said, yeah, and you two older son have been, have been waiting for me to die to get my stuff. So the father turns, he says... Everything I've ever had has been yours this entire time and open unto you. And you have had complete and total access to it in the past, in the present, in the future. Everything I've had, everything I've had has been total access. You've been able to access it as much as you want. But this son of mine who was lost and is now found. All right, so in that story... Jesus is actually really picking on the older brother. Because part of, part of the understanding of this, like I read these verses, right? Sorry, I'm going to read it a fourth time. You know, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We, we kind of can go, yeah, that's okay, sure. Yeah, that's right. But we don't understand that Jesus is actually picking on us. And in the story of the good Samaritan and the prodigal, he's saying we are actually all that older brother or we're prone to it. We're prone to having God save us and to save us. Just like I mentioned last week, we had this baptism and people proclaiming salvation and proclaiming transformation. And so what's natural to us is that we once were lost, now we're found. We had sinful habits. We had things that we trusted God for. We trusted God for him. He began to change our life and change our life. And then the days and years roll by and all of a sudden we are that older brother. But we don't see it. And we begin to interact with people who are weak and sinful and struggling in rather judgmental ways. Or we hold ourselves back socially. So Jesus is actually bringing a very convicting teaching and saying, Church, I am calling all of us out to reject being that older brother, that older sister of judgment, calling you out trying to bring you to remembrance that once you too, maybe you didn't have those same moral issues, but once you too were somehow lost and I found you and I brought you back home. Yes, you too, I never forgot about. Never forgot about your name, your uniqueness. 
I created you for a purpose and I'm calling you back to myself. Yes, you too. And I want you to be baptized in my love and immersed in my love. You too. And so these people who are weak and downtrodden, I'm asking you as a church to understand with my heart and to love those in society who are not like that. So fascinating over social media, just one, one quick comment. Um, I meant to do this kind of an introduction, but related to, related to all the politicking and that kind of thing that's going on in our society. So listen, church, I, the home team really knows this, but I'm going to go there again. We come here as church to gather together to worship Jesus. And we are not responding to everything in the world. Because we know, we know that. We are actually here to overcome the world. And so we're not coming here and we don't gather to find out what Pastor Rick Soto thinks about the latest of CNN and Fox News. Praise the Lord, right? Like, don't ever come for that. <laughs> we come here to hear from God, to teach the scriptures, to actually humble ourselves before God. We come here to receive prayer and to pray for one another. We come here to enter in and traffic into the kingdom of God. We actually come here to have nothing to do with the world. We come here for sacred things. And so, so there are people, though, that want to know, okay, well, are you going to preach about this, what the Supreme Court did this week? Are you going to preach about what the Supreme Court did last week? Are you going to preach about what the Supreme Court did 20 years ago? And now, Are you going to preach about where the Democrats are at? Are you going to preach about where the Republicans are at? And you know that I love politics, right? But that's not the point. The point is for us to come together before God. Those things all come and go. Christ is our anchor. Christ is our rock. And so whatever man does with the law whether it's related to abortion or anything else, our mission is the same. Our, our mission is to actually have mercy and love and compassion and assistance for anybody who finds himself in a troubled place. If they're pregnant and that's a troubled thing, or if they're poor and that's a troubled thing, or if they're all of a sudden an immigrant and that's a troubled thing, as examples of those in society who are struggling. We don't care what man does in that sense. Our mission is exactly the same. We bring Christ. We bring his love. We bring pragmatic and tangible help to someone. And that's what Paul's teaching here. He, he's, he's given a more linear approach to the very teachings of Jesus Christ. And he's trying to actually, he's using the Old Testament here to remind us that this has actually been true. That the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, are actually accepted into the kingdom of God. And they themselves actually have a role in the whole redemptive plan of God. They have something. They have something that Christ wants to use and utilize greatly. So let's run for home. What's interesting about the two stories that I referenced here, Luke chapter 15 and Luke chapter 10, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, is that Jesus is so unlike us in this sense, especially, he cares about the attitude of the heart and the why motive so often. In other words, I have, and I'm sure like you, have given assistance to somebody. Maybe somebody on the street asks you for money. Right, so Jesus is still working on the hardness of your own pastor's heart. So sometimes I'll be like, oh, okay, 
Can you, can you just let go? And I won't even look at the person, right? And what does the Holy Spirit do to Pastor Rick? You better get, you better get right with me real quick here, Pastor. <laughs> That's not how to treat another person, to dismiss a social doubt cast who's struggling to not look them in the eye, to not care for them personally, to not stop your agenda and care for somebody else more important than yourself. God doesn't care about the nickels that I can give somebody, cares about the heart cares about how I would actually treat somebody. And so Jesus gets after that. Jesus actually gets after that heart, that heart within us. And so our heart within us must change, and it changes through a direct salvation, a direct line that you can have this connection with God. This is actually the most unique thing on planet Earth. There is no other faith or religion like this at all that claims that you can have direct access to God because God made it possible himself, not through a ritual, not through some rote words that I would have you repeat, but because God himself came down out of heaven and came down to earth, and that's the person of Jesus Christ, and lived a sinless life and a perfect life and actually went to the cross and three days later, like you said, was resurrected from the dead. So if you want to know what heaven is like, talk to somebody who went to heaven. Go listen to the man who was resurrected on the third day. And so we tend to think that it's about being good enough, and we miss all the stories of the Bible where Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's been crucified, and he turns to a thief right next to him who's also stuck on the cross. And that thief can't do anything for Jesus. He's stuck on the cross. And Jesus has another thief next to him who's mocking him. And then Jesus has other people on the, on the ground who are mocking him, and he's God, and he can get off the cross. In other words, they're saying, hey, why don't you get off there? Why don't you get off there? I mean, you know, really, you helped everybody else. You can't help yourself right now? What a loser. And the thief on the cross rebukes the other guy, says, we're justly here. Hey, Jesus, is it possible that today you could remember me? Could you, could you save me right now? And Jesus stuck on the cross because he's dying for everyone's sin. This is intentional. He was not murdered. He's doing it willfully and purposefully. He could actually get off there. He could actually call on a host of angelic armies and they could come and save him and bring judgment to everybody. But he's restraining them. He's restraining himself so that he can die on the cross. And he says to that guy, you can do absolutely nothing for him. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Our connection to God is not based on our self-righteousness. Our connection to God is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our prayers are answered not on our own self-righteousness. Our prayers are answered by a divine connection to God where we actually start many of our prayers in some way by telling God as Father, I have no righteousness of my own except the blood of Christ. And so if the blood of Christ is now acceptable in your sight, then hear this prayer and do this miracle. The first miracle is saving a soul. Jesus, in saying all these things, is really fascinating because he says, you have to actually acknowledge me publicly. So my, my normal intuition would be sort of to sit on my knees and have my hands like this and, and just pray. And, and all of that is completely appropriate. But somewhere there is a public acknowledgement 
that I belong to Jesus Christ, that he's my Lord, he's my Savior, he's my God, he's my friend, and that I've actually given my life to him, there's actually this public acknowledgement that I have actually left sin behind and Jesus Christ actually saved my soul. There's also public acknowledges for, for those of us who are on the home team who know that we, in a sense, just need to come home again. Somehow we find ourselves on a journey that's somewhat wayward. We're far from the words that we just read. We're far from these things which have been spoken of in the text, and we actually need to come back home. And so I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray and ask the Lord Jesus to do some work in your heart. For some of you, there's going to need to be this public expression of faith. We're going to join me here in a moment of prayer and we're going to declare Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And some of you need miracles today. You need a miracle over your mind. You have, you have a mind that is so full of stinking thinking that, as they say, that it actually perverts you, that it pulls you down, that it steals joy, that it steals treasure in heaven, that it actually takes away the blessings of God. Some of you have that because of what's going on in your thought life and you need to come out from the shadows and declare allegiance to Jesus Christ and receive prayer that is going to change your life in a moment. Others of you need other kinds of healings as well. And so listen, church, I'm going to pray. This July 4th weekend, I'm going to pray. As we talk about loving the weak, I'm going to ask those of you who are weak in the moment to just confess that before God and come and get ministered to you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray now, God, that you would come. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us. I pray that you would speak into our hearts and our lives, Lord God. I pray that you would convict us and free our soul. I pray, Jesus, freedom to the captives over our church today. God, I pray freedom over every soul at this very moment. I pray right now, Jesus, you would release waves and waves of divine love upon everyone. God, I pray that you'd open up the storehouse of heaven and release waves and waves of divine love by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, you'd allow us to come home to you today in our hearts and our souls. So, Lord Jesus, we need you. Take control of our lives. Be the Lord of our lives and the Savior of our lives. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.